0: Welcome to Inside Economics. I'm Mark Sandy, the Chief Economist of Moody's Analytics. And this is part two of the podcast we recorded a couple of days with Nick Bunker, Adam Ozimek, and the team. Uh, we focused on the job market in the last uh, podcast. This podcast, we're going to be focusing on remote work dynamics, something that Nick and Adam have spent a lot of time on. So uh, I hope you enjoy the conversation, and uh, uh, we'll pick it up here. But let's turn to remote work. Uh, and uh, I know both you... Adam and Nick have done a lot of work in this area. And I i know Nick, I mean, uh, Adam, you're you are definitely a remote work, well, I'll call it a proselytizer, uh, you know, someone who's all in, remote work is here uh, to stay, it's a game changer, it's, and it's there's a lot of cross-currents, but on net, it's a definitive positive for the broader economy. And, and Nick, are you in that camp? Are you a proselytizer as well? Or are you kind of, I don't know where you stand exactly on this.
1: So I'm definitely of the camp that it's like, it's here to stay, here to, think, stay. Eh, here to stay. Um, I, I, the, uh, the extent in the extent in for who it's here to stay for, or the speed at which more people have access to it, I think maybe, and I don't want, I don't want to mischaracterize Adam's vision there. I think maybe I'm less of a remote work bull, um, or sort of like have less of an optimistic outlook, but. Um, so I, I think it's definitely here to stay. I think it just might be here to stay for a smaller subset of workers than, um, than some people think.
0: Yeah. I guess that depends on the technology too, and how fast that changes and so forth and so on. Is there data that you look at at Indeed that gives you this perspective on why you think remote work is here to stay?
1: Yeah. So, uh, I mean, the main thing that we look at is, uh, job postings. Mm-hmm. So looking at the text of job postings to you know, look at the rate at which, um, the, those job advertisements advertised remote work. And it's a pretty expansive definition of remote work. Um, and we've been publishing a series that looks at essentially the beginning of 2019 through, um, October. So Halloween of this year, October 31st, and so all November data when, um, the, the month ends. Um, but you know, prior to you know, 2019, the average share of postings on Indeed that mentioned or advertised remote work was about 2.7%. Um, and then that jumped dramatically in the spring of 2020. And you know, it hit its peak of about 10% um, in February of this year and has come down. And now it's closer to eight and a half as the end of October. Um, so there's been some pullback there, but some portion of that is can be explained by the fact that the sectors that have seen the biggest pullback in job postings are indeed this year have been the more mm. the sector's the tech, most likely to tech
0: related kind to, of, exactly. Yeah, yeah. So
1: software development um, is you know one category on our site. Um, those postings have come down dramatically this year. Um, and they're also, you know the sector most likely to advertise remote work. But what's interesting is that as that has come down, you know, the, the sheer number of postings in software development on Indeed, the rate at which software development job postings advertising remote work, it's held flat. So it's not as though employers are, you know, when mm-hmm. they're pulling those, po- it's not as though they're disproportionately pulling down the remote postings or within their postings, they do have substituting them away. It's just that it, it's mostly, um, you know, at least for that sector, a composition effect, where it's just the, the number of those postings that sector's coming down and not employers aren't rethinking their, at least when it comes to advertising, remote work, their decision there.
2: Too, too, you got to give too, us the fixed weight version, Nick. When are you guys yeah, do the fixed exactly. fixed sectoral weight version, uh, I mean, maybe that's a Christmas vacation project. No, I'm kidding.
0: <laughs> no, no. That'd be Christmas for everybody. I'd love to see that. Yeah, yeah. The control for it. Uh, two questions. One is, when you say remote work, do you mean full remote work, or is that also hybrid remote?
1: It is both. So it, it is, is an both. expansive definition, and um, Adam was asking for the fixed weight, but I think the thing that we're working on currently is a better understanding of hybrid and non-hybrid remote work. It's like better um, measuring that um, and teasing that out in, in the data series that we share.
0: So if, we went, if you went from two, I'm making this up roughly, two, 10, 2%, 10%, 8%, what is the remote work, the full remote work share? Is it half that? Is it? You know, what is that? What is that? Do you have a sense of that?
1: So don't have a precise number in part yeah. because that's what we're right. what to you're working out. on? Um, yeah. Yeah. Um, but I think um my sense is that given what we see in other measures of remote work, um it that it's mostly hybrid. So the Measuring sectors hybrid. that are like yeah. fully remote, that that's the minority, mm-hmm. I think pretty highly concentrated in sectors like tech, so like software development jobs. Um you know, uh, caveat here that, or sort of, uh, personal bias is that I work at a technology company. I'm fully remote and have been for years. Um, and I think, you know, earlier I said, you know, you look pretty
0: healthy too. You look very healthy. Uh, seems to be working out for you. Okay. This whole remote work thing. You notice that you see that Marissa, look how good he looks. Yeah.
1: looks great. Yeah. Very sporty.
0: Yeah. Very sporty.
1: Yeah. Very sporty. (laughs) Thank you. Yeah. The, the Florida Sunshine can do wonders. Uh, um, I was
0: wondering where you were because you look too relaxed. I mean, yeah. Where are you? You're in Tampa, aren't you? You're in Tampa, I think.
1: Yeah, uh, yeah St. Tampa. Pete. St. Pete. That's yeah. just across the bank. Right. So, yeah. yeah. Um, See how he's, he's even gotten
0: I, that down now. I live in St. Pete. I don't really live in Tampa. <laughs> yeah.
1: That mostly comes from the fact that, so we, we moved to St. Pete uh, because that's where my wife grew up. And there's like a big, like, if you're from St. Pete, don't know, not, not Tampa, you know, like, no, uh, no, I, I hear you.
0: Like, yeah. in yeah. Philly, The Philly suburbs, I go three miles, you know, West of here that uh, that's not where I live. I don't live over there. You know? So, yeah. So
1: yeah. Very, very specific.
0: Yeah. Uh, one other question. You, you do have international operations. Is the U S unique yes. or is this typical across the world? This, these kind of percentages for remote work
1: yeah no American exceptions on here um similarly similar stories um huh. in, in a variety of markets where um you saw you know so a baseline level of postings that advertise remote work spring of 2020 uh they the share postings that mention these uh, kinds of role or opportunities jump and have slowly come down uh, again this is you know not compositionally adjusted it's so no fixed weights yet um Thank you for that project, Adam. Um, And then, but, um, and this is actually, um, that is uh, some colleagues of mine did research, uh, did some work with uh, the OECD. And that was like the finding of their um, research was that across 20 markets that indeed has um, operations in and that we have data on similar trend restrictions and reductions in mobility, um, you know, happened in 2020, Um, they are lifted or removed, or people start you know moving around again. In remote postings, have drifted down, but they haven't um, you know returned back to their 2019 level.
0: Yeah, just my again anecdotes. When I was I went on this global world tour. Uh, everywhere I went, it felt except for the Middle East. Uh, you know, in Europe, in Asia, not in the Middle East, it was very much like here in the U.S. You know, people not coming in. They just don't come into the office. They just don't come in in London yeah. and. In Singapore, yeah. they just don't. Uh, oh, Tokyo yeah. would be the other exception. They they, they definitely mm-hmm. go to the office in Tokyo. Yeah, they definitely go to the office. Yeah. yeah um, um,
1: uh, our team's a global team, and that's been my experience too, like going on Zoom calls with like folks in the Toronto office. There's no, like, you can just have a meeting in like an open area because there's no one there. Yeah. Um, same thing with like the London office, stuff like that.
0: Yeah. Hey, Adam, because uh, you've done a lot of work in this area, those percentages feel low to me. I mean, kind of in my mind's eye, I've got this thought that the percentage of the workforce that's going to be remote, you know, hybrid, and that's why I asked whether it's full or hybrid hybrid and full is going to settle in somewhere around 15 to 20%. You know, that, that, is that right? Am I getting that right? Or based on the other data you're looking at or. Yeah. I mean,
2: Nick's looking at job posts, right. And, you know, without, without industry mix being controlled. So. I believe Nick's. if you look at the relative change, that's probably a better, you know, from two to eight, you know, a quadrupling is probably a better way to think about it than to look at it as 2% versus 8% when you look like, at the full yep. economy. Uh, right now, actually, we're gonna have better data on this soon, the, the BLS um, stopped asking its remote work question, which was not functioning because it included the caveat, are you working remotely because of COVID? They stopped asking that, and I believe next month is going to be the first month when they oh. have new remote work questions when they ask about in much more detail. So we'll have a better estimate of them. But if you look across, you know, a variety of surveys, Gallup, um, Nick Bloom is running surveys. Um, it, the current remote plus uh, hybrid is probably like thirty-five to forty-five percent, still substantial, with uh, two-thirds of that being hybrid. So think of something like thirteen percent. Um, uh, fully and then thirty percent remote. I think is where Blooms estimates currently stand oh, wow. at. Um, okay. you have to be concerned that there's there's uh, online survey bias there. So the yeah the, when the BLS numbers come out, they might be lower than that. Um, but I don't think they're going to be orders of magnitude lower. I don't think they're I think they're going to look more like that than the two percent uh 8, 8, or than the eight percent number in the work. So okay, I, I think you've got um. But you know, they also look at employer expectations. They ask employers, what are you planning? And, you know, in their data, the long run is not planned to be substantially lower than where we are. So like normalization has happened a lot. And another piece of evidence for that is to look at the castle data on the office vacancies, like that's pretty consistent with like, this is it, we're back to normal. Um, You don't have some big return to office shoe yet to drop. It's more like this is, at at best, this is how it's going to be. And I think longer run, um, as the remote labor market evolves, we're going to see even more full-time because while things are converging back to what employers want, employees want more. right? And so in the long run, uh, it's going to you're going to have this this negotiation between employers and employees, and you're going to have new firm entrants and a variety of factors that I I think are going to, and you know, technology getting better, labor markets evolving, that I think are going to push us even further into the fully remote camp. Now, at the end of the day, I don't think we're going to end up with more than like 20% fully remote. To, but that's still huge, right? Like that's okay. one of five workers. That okay, imagine. so is
0: that kind of rule of thumb I was using feels about right to you, like the 15 to 20%-ish where we settle in? It sounds about-
2: well, I think that's fully remote. And then I think another, you know- Oh, okay. Or so so I, oh, think, okay. I think a third of workers, maybe a 40% workers. being hybrid. You okay. know, a lot of people are, especially if you look, you know, hybrid is like one, you know, if you're doing one day a week, I think a lot of jobs can accommodate one day yeah. a week, for example. So two days a week, three days a week. So I think- Thirty to forty percent hybrid is probably where, all together, you know, remote, fully plus hybrids were lined up.
0: Got it. We're you know we're remote. We're fully remote. At at, uh, our economics world within the Moody's Analytics organization, everyone is is able to do kind of sort of their own thing, depending on circumstance and and culturally, you know, what is you know felt to be appropriate. But we're we're fully remote uh, now. Um,
3: Except Chris. Maybe hybrid. Up, Chris.
0: You can go in. We have an office, although no one—I mean, Chris and three other people—go in. You know, so um, and I'm not exaggerating. It might be ten other people. I don't know. We, you remember our office? We have this five-story office building, and at at most, we can't even fill a floor at this point on a given day. Now, how long
2: until you guys start uh, decreasing your office size? Yeah, there you go. you've got got subleases already. How? how, Where do you think you'll be in three years? What's your Uh, office square footage going to be? We're definitely out. Whole building gone.
0: Yeah, it may be, you know, well, you know, we might be a little unique in that we Moody's has other office space in, you know, King of Prussia, for example, that's not far away. So we can kind of use app. that if we need to. But yeah, I think, I think three years from now, we're just not going to, if we have any space, it's going to be a shadow of what it is today, shadow of what it is today. Because, you know, people, that's what people want. You know, I mean, I'm not, I'm, I mean, almost, you know, a lot of folks say, oh, young people want to go into the office. Well, not in my, experience you know not and again this is anecdotal and maybe it's confirmation bias i'm not sure because i i do find a lot of value in the remote work but um you know even the young people are all in they they want you know they want contact they want can we get together you know on a regular basis on an off site and you know maybe a conferences that we put on and you can have t- team building and that kind of thing they want that uh, which I totally get. And I think that's what makes good, but they don't want to be, they don't want to have the, an obligation to go into the office, even one day a week. They don't want they don't they don't want that. Which by the way, and this is now evolving into well, what does it mean for the broader economy? The one thing it's done for us is it's vastly increased our labor supply uh, you know, of opportunities. Cause now I got folks that are, were hiring in California, Mercies in California, and you were the only one for a long time. And now we've got others because we can't. Right. We can't. We got there's all kinds of HR issues around. Well, you know, should they where should they be? What, what salary should they be tied to and nexus and legal issues? And like overseas, if somebody wants to go from here to there, does Moody's have nexus in that country? You know, that kind of those kind of issues, but we'll work those through. And, and you know, increasingly, it's becoming, you know, part part of the process. So we're, we're, all, we're all in. Let, let's, let's talk about the economic implications of this. When you were on. Uh, A year and a half ago, Adam, you were making the case that this was productivity enhancing. And I guess there's lots of different ways remote work affects the economy. Migration flows, regional economic performances, real estate markets, which we're going to come back to in the context of your work, recent work, but also productivity, which I think is probably the, correct me if you have a different view, the most significant macroeconomic consequence of remote work is what it means for underlying productivity growth and you were making the case that it is productivity enhancing on that and i'm sure you feel the same way but i'm i've kind of lost track you know what kind of is the research out there that we've seen in the last year and a half confirming that view or is it changing the view in any way uh, how do you think about that now
2: yeah, I mean, so like headline top line productivity is not great. So, like to, to the extent yeah. that you're looking for that for your evidence, like that wouldn't be suggestive of it. But I certainly wouldn't look there for evidence of this impact. I think top line productivity is probably mostly being held down by like the level of excess churn in the labor market. Um, you know, as an employer, how difficult it is to get people up to speed to be, you know, at their peak productivity. It takes time. Um, and when you're dealing with lots of Still elevated quits and turnover like that's going to be a drag on productivity, and that's going to matter more as you your firm hits capacity right. Like when you're dealing in the early stages of the pandemic, all your output's down anyway. It's not really going to hold you back, but as you start to be returning to le- regular levels of demand, trying to produce high levels of demand, but you're dealing with churn, that's what's probably bringing headline productivity down. That's my expectation, but that's pretty qualitative assessment. Um, in the experimental evidence. Um, Yeah, I mean, we've got like, you've got studies that look at sort of what are the, um, like the drivers of productivity growth. So like Microsoft had this interesting study suggesting that remote workers communicate really well within teams, but like they become some siloing between teams, right? Like that's an interesting result that is suggestive of possible negative productivity effects. Then you've got straight on experimental evidence. Uh, Nick Bloom did a great study on remote work. Um, this was a lot of the experimental evidence to date has been around, um, uh, like sort of call center workers and like relatively low skilled. This was, uh, software developers and, uh, other skilled workers at a, at a, at a company and they did an experimental study showing that the productivity effects were positive. So like, that's sort of the accumulative evidence we've got so far. Um, and, uh, I, I, I don't see any reason to, to revise my beliefs there, um, I do think a big part of the pro productivity part is going to come through uh, more dynamism in the economy, new firms. and it's it's really hard to to take a company as I'm sure you guys have felt and change your operating procedures to accommodate fully remote work. It's a, just a different way of doing business. Yeah, and sure. um I think that, that uh, a lot of companies who struggled to do it are bringing people back to the office. And, and what they will find is that because they said, look, remote work doesn't work in our industry. And that's their conclusion. And what they're actually finding is remote work doesn't work with our leadership team, with our processes, with our way we work. But some startup, is going to figure out how to make it work and they'll be disruptive.
0: Yeah, I can't see new companies forming and optimizing around cubes in an office building. I just can't see it. Uh, if they can you know help it. Uh, and uh, we have seen a surge in business formation, and it's come down a little, the, the increases have come down a bit this year, but in the last couple of years, we've seen a, a really a, a unprecedented surge in formation. And we know this by looking at taxpayer identification numbers for new companies that are forming. So it's pretty good data, and yeah, I'm sure there's many reasons for that. But one, I one thought I had was that this was also remote remote work empowered. I mean, I mean, it's much easier to set up shop uh, if if uh, you're able to, uh, you know, you don't need an office space to do it. Is that is that is there some evidence of that? Any evidence of that?
2: Yeah, I did a study last year showing that the business applications data in a state panel okay. was um, related to um, you know uh, growth in remote workers using uh, Upwork data. So yeah, you I, I've okay. seen a pretty pretty strong correlation between you know it's it's not causal, but they're happening in the same places basically. Yeah.
0: Hey, hey, Nick, anything you want to add here on the uh, the kind of the macro consequences, the, particularly from the perspective of uh, productivity gains? I mean, anything you're observing that uh, kind of reinforces the point or takes away from the point?
1: No, I, I think I would just like really strongly agree with what Adam said about just you know, people saying that or sort of business saying that remote work doesn't work for them. I think that's just like a doesn't work for them now. And they might find that they're like going to have to adjust that like return to office is something that happened, you know, on this timeline, but on a longer timeline, it's going to be relatively difficult for you know, firms. You know, maybe in some sectors there'll be hold- some holdouts, but like to firmly say, like no, five days a week in office. Maybe there'll be holdouts, and there'll be small sh- like some firms that survive that way. But it does feel like you know, as this becomes more and more, you know, just a, a normal way of working. It doesn't seem sustainable for, for, uh, for companies to hold out against hybrid. I do wonder, you know, again, with the you know growth or permits of it, like how much can be done or will be, how much fully remote work will be tolerated or sort of like given to workers like that margin I'm curious about and don't have like super strong, like forecast or beliefs in, um, um maybe a little bit more thinking that like high like hybrid remote work would be like the very durable kind um and the um the fully remote might be more flexible, but um I'm not I don't have super strong certain mm-hmm. like stance on that.
0: I have a uh, one other uh, qu- uh, question and this is uh on the speculative side and everything we do is on the speculate we're speculating all the time so but this is a higher order of specula speculation and it, it it goes to this distinction between hybrid work and fully remote. I have a hard time figuring out how to make hybrid really work. Uh, I I suppose, unless you're saying you, you got to be in, everybody's got to be in these two days a week. Otherwise you just get critical mass within the in-person where you're supposed to be. And it doesn't, meetings don't make sense. In-person meetings don't make sense because some people are out, some people are in, and everyone just lands on Zoom and goes back to the Zoom meeting because that's the easiest thing to do. Is that do I does that, that resonate with you? I mean, uh, you got to remote. Seems like you, you can, there's nothing in between here. You got to have either uh, you know hard hybrid, well defined hybrid, or remote, or is or, or is there other ways of thinking about it?
1: So my personal experience, like definitely lines up with that. Like yeah. if you have, especially within teams, like they need to be distributed teams and everyone's showing up to the zoom call in separate like places or rooms, or there's gotta be some coordination of people being in the, in the office. Cause like if you've ever been, I've been in meetings where it's like, there's like six or seven people in one conference room. And then there's like three people in different locations. And maybe this is the sort of thing with like technology gets better. But it just it turns into a situation where it's like the people who are the hybrid workers who are in the office. It's just like a different um, environment than if everyone was just like one square in the Zoom. Yeah, makes sense.
0: Uh, Adam, let's let's uh, discuss the impact of uh this remote work on real estate markets. And would could you summarize the paper you did? Uh, I mean, it's very relevant. Uh, to remote work, to uh, current rent growth, house price growth, and ultimately to the inflation picture, because cost of housing services depends critically on rents. And that goes as a big component of inflation, particularly the CPI. It's one third of the CPI. Can you summarize the, the, the study and the results?
2: Yeah. So we, you know, obviously in the short run, housing markets are, look extraordinarily tight. Price growth is really high. And at the same time, you know, remote work has increased substantially. And I think the natural question is like, how much has remote work contributed to the decline of housing affordability? And in this paper uh, with uh, co-authors, uh, Greg Howard and Jack Leibachon, we uh, urge people to take a look at the long run and do our best to think about what the long, how the long run might be different. So in, you've got two components of housing demand that have changed. You have overall housing demand, which is to say any given remote worker um, is going to want more housing, right? On average, they need the office space, they need the square footage, they want—you know—they want to consume more housing. It's—it's it's harder to share a place with like four roommates if all four are you are working remotely. It's so like you have this positive housing demand effect. The other effect is the location demand, which is it changes where people want to live. And um, in the short run, we've had—you know—constrained supply. So how do we put all these things together and think about what the long run will be? And the two pieces of information that really underlie our estimates are cross-sectionally, you've seen rent growth be highest and population growth be highest. So the two signs of increasing migration, you've seen that in places where housing is actually more elastic, right? So the places where the housing supply normally grows more in the long run, that's where people are going, that's where housing demand is strong and that should reduce house prices in the long run. So it, it actually, I actually the the motivation for this paper was a previous paper that Greg Jack and Greg wrote which was about how migration over the last two decades into inelastic supply cities was a major driver of inflation because it drives up the cost of living and people are sort of moving into places where they don't build. So it's weird to think about this as a macro phenomenon, right? Like normally we think like people movement within the U.S. shouldn't be a macro phenomenon, right? To a first approximation, but like if people are moving into the inelastic areas away from the elastic areas, that's going to reduce affordability and increase inflation. And I think now we're sort of seeing the opposite play out. So it's positive. For the long run, that where we've seen strong demand as places where people tend to build, that should that should make rent growth come down, that's our expectation. Rents will fall in the future and um, you know it's a positive thing for affordability
0: and what about the short run? Because I think there might be a distinction here between the long run and the short run. In the short run, you know you listen to the folks in the real estate industry, like for example, we had um, Marco Brinsky. On the podcast, he's the chief economist of the uh, uh, National Multifamily Housing Council (NMHC). I believe I have that right. And he was, or in and, and also uh, John Burns, of uh, a really good real estate guy who owns his own firm that tracks uh, new housing markets very carefully. And they're making they're making the point that the, the flows of people from the Northeast, Chicago, the West Coast, you know, high rent areas, high house price areas, into the South. You know, like Tampa, over to Austin, Mountain West, has really juiced up house prices and rents in the areas in which these folks are moving to because they're used to seeing high house prices in New York or in L.A. They come into Boise or Tampa and they say, "Oh, this is a bargain," and they they drive up the price. And it doesn't have much of an impact on the price or rent for where these folks are coming from because these are big markets, and you know they lose. Ten thousand people, hundred thousand people—it's not going to make, doesn't change the dial on measured rent growth and and house price growth. And so the net of all of that is, when we saw the surge in out, uh, outflows, you know, back up until a year ago for remote work, that significantly contributed to the house price growth and the rent growth we observed observe Then, and I mean, on, and moreover, in the last year, we've seen remote work it's still elevated. You know, people moving due to, to remote work is still elevated, but it's definitely down from where it was a year ago. That's helping to contribute to this kind of softening that we're starting to observe in house prices and rents in some of these markets. Does that, does that square with your results? Uh, does that, is that contrary to your results or are we thinking about this? Is it, are these folks thinking about it wrong?
2: Uh, I think they are. I think they are thinking about it wrong because I think you need to look at the two channels, the housing demand channel and the location demand channel. If you look at the places that have lost the most workers as a result of remote work and migration patterns, it's not trivial about I mean, like San Francisco, New York City, like a lot of downtown, high urban, large urban areas lost significant population as a result of remote work and migration channels. And even there... We saw strong rent and house price growth. So like, what does that tell you, right? Like it can't just be about places receiving remote workers or, or seeing demand go up, and that's the whole story. It's really about this increase in demand all over the place. You have, have household formation everywhere. So even places that are losing population, household formation is going up strong enough to cause tight housing markets there. And so I think that's really a big part of the short-term story is that strong. Household formation growth, and then in the long run, like New York is a place that doesn't build a lot of housing. So is San Francisco. They have a pretty vertical supply curve, and so population loss. Once you, um, <clears throat> you know, once you come for that household formation, population loss should bring house prices. Like relatively speaking, like if we look at the relative difference in house prices, those should be relatively lower. These other places um, should go up, but these are the places that build. So I just think overall. If you take the U.S. population and you move it around and you move it away from the inelastic places mm-hmm. and you move it to the elastic places, mm-hmm. that's going to be positive for affordability in the long run.
0: Chris, what do you think? Uh, how, uh, what do you think of this? Did I characterize those uh, the John Burns and Marco Brunsky's views correctly? Uh, and how, does, uh, how do you think about this in the context of Adam's work?
3: Yeah, <clears throat> well, I think you characterized it correctly. Right. Uh-huh. Uh, and we are seeing or have seen pretty significant price declines in uh, in a San Francisco for example as, as people are moving around um i think i think there's a underlying demographic trend here as well yeah. that gets commingled with the uh, remote work and uh, migration that we experienced during the pandemic so i want to be a little careful there in terms of understanding where the longer term trends are because by my mind we're going to yeah there's a there's this wave of um of demand that exists, but that's going to to fade over time, and then we'll see what uh, where the uh, where the pieces land. Uh, and just backing up to the previous conversation, I, th- I think we want to be a little bit careful when it comes to remote work as well. I think we're really focusing on services and financial services in particular, but clearly, right, we're shifting to more reshoring of manufacturing. I think that that uh, fraction of the population that actually can work remotely is going to remain relatively low, mm-hmm. That, at least to my mind. And that will have some implications on these real estate markets as well in terms of where these businesses are going to be formed, where these manufacturing plants for batteries and whatnot are actually going to be formed. So I think that may actually have a, a more significant driver in terms of future um, real estate demand than uh, what we're talking about here in terms of remote work, which may have been more of a one-time shift that coming out of the pandemic, I don't know if this is a sustained trend that we're going to see here. Hmm. I threw a lot out there in a short period of time, so feel free but to the
2: react. Point of, to point of clarification, though, Chris, when you say San Francisco prices have come down, you mean relative to their peak. You don't mean relative to pre-pandemic. They're still quite elevated compared to pre-pandemic.
3: Correct, but they are. Th- that's right, but they are falling quite rapidly now, and they didn't fall nearly as much as other areas during the pandemic or, or rise sorry they didn't rise as nearly yes. as much as other they've areas lost, right? they've were... lost
2: out so yeah so i think yeah, you see there that. Was an look at that relative change that relative change in prices compared to other parts of the country that's the fingerprint of remote work there that san francisco has become a less desirable place to live but then you look at how all places have sort of risen In terms of house prices and housing demand, that's the housing demand channel, which is affected by remote work, but also obviously strong income growth over that time period. And I think that that's kind of what we're seeing is like household formation pulling back as interest rates go up, and you know, like housing markets are being pulled back. Just yeah,
0: sorry. Relative,
2: the relative difference I expect to be expect to be permanent. That this this difference between Manhattan, for example, and the surrounding areas. You've seen this massive decline in the urban uh, CBD weight, the price gradient. You've seen it everywhere. Mm-hmm. And I expect that to be relatively permanent.
0: Mm-hmm. And to close the loop on what it means for inflation, you actually, in the study, I think you came up with 1.8%. The CPI index will be ultimately 1.8 percentage points lower than it otherwise would have been without the remote work uh, dynamic. Did I is that right? So something along those lines.
2: What one point eight percent from here? So yeah, from <laughs> it's here actually, an even a higher number would be to run the counterfactual of yeah. increased continued urbanization, which would have continued pushing CPI up. So co- compared to we we sort of just looked at the change from here versus that, but yeah, one point eight. That's a long run estimate, but I think that you know that's a lot. You think about uh, urban area. The CPI is an urban. You know, it's an yeah. urban inflation index, be, right? It, so we say
0: we say long run, say ten years. Take one point eight divide by ten. That's 8, 18 basis points, point one eight percentage points per year. That's that's consequential. That's
2: a lot. That, that's yeah. It it's yeah. hard to say what the what the long yeah. run is going. Yeah. Right. How how fast we get to the long yeah. run for sure. I pick, but 10, I think. Yeah. Yeah.
0: Yeah. But still, I mean, it's it's meaningful. It's measurable. It's it's on the Fed's radar screen. You know, should be on the Fed's radar screen, right? So. Interesting. Yep. Fascinating. Uh, well, uh, you know, uh, our podcasts are getting longer and longer and longer and I had hoped to keep this one shorter, but how can I do that? These guys are great. I mean, the conversation is really good and particularly because they agreed with me, you know, so how could we cut this one short? No possible way, but what it does mean is we got to have you guys back in short order here. So uh, and as I said, I think the moment of truth on this whole debate around the labor market is coming you know, here uh, pretty soon. So maybe we can have you back for that. But I want to thank everyone for participating. And uh, uh, I was going to give an, uh, throw out an open-ended question, but it's a, always a very dangerous thing. So I'm not going to do that. I'm going to call it quits. Thanks, everyone. It was a great podcast. Have a great Thanksgiving. And uh, we'll talk to you soon.